this morning, I'd like for you to turn now with me to the book of Philippians, the book of Philippians. I want you to turn to chapter 3. The reason that I'm going to read these two verses is uh, because I believe that at the heart of this whole letter, we find what he says right here to be very, very significant to what is underlying everything that Paul writes and everything that he does. So chapter 3 and verse 7. Chapter 3 and verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. I count all things but loss for the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus. That's what that phrase means. It's not about the knowledge about there was a historical man, but Paul is saying everything in my life that I counted as gain, I now count as loss because there is a surpassing value in my life. And that is knowing Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit of God, we bow in your presence today in faith because of the work of Calvary, because, Lord Jesus, you gave your life paying my sin debt so that I could raise up my voice and pray and know that you hear me so that I could know that the promise that you would never leave us, you would never forsake us, you would go with us, your mercy is to us toward us forever and ever and ever. We come in His name today and we pray and we ask You, Lord, as we venture to open Your Word, infallible, inerrant, inspired Word, O oh God, that You would cause us to be as the psalmist, approaching it with trembling, realizing our inadequacy to preach it, realizing our inadequacy to understand it, and pray to you, God, to focus our attention, to give us mercy this morning, that our attention would come to your word, our focus and our attention would be on you, seeking to know you, to delight in you, to enjoy you, to feed from you. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Philippians, it's not a very long book. It's actually a letter. And you can tell that as soon as you begin to read it because there's a greeting at the front. <laughs> there's a salutation right on the front door. And there is a, a greeting at the end of the book. It's a letter. Paul is writing a letter, as he does in so many of the other uh, letters that he wrote to the, that we went through. The book of Colossians was a letter to the church at Colossia. The book of Ephesians is a letter to the church at Ephesus. And this is something that we are eternally grateful to God that we have in our hands today. We have a letter 
that was written by one of the apostles of Jesus Christ who was inspired to write it down. And when he wrote it down, he was being, he was being led and directed by the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, so that what we have in our hands today is the Word of God. It is not without the author's personality. It is not without a cultural uh, background and situation that the church was in, that Paul was in. All of those things are present in all of the writings of the Bible. And yet it is the Word of God. It is Scripture, Holy Scripture. And so what I want to do this morning with this message, by God's grace and Him willing, is to look at three things, make three observations about the entire letter, four chapters, um, just as a way of introduction to the book before we get into the exposition of the different verses in the coming weeks. The three things that I want to look at, the three observations that I want to make, is number one, I want to look at the historical context of the city of Philippi and the, and the church at Philippi. So I want to look at the historical context because that has a bearing to our interpretation of the letter. The second thing that I want to do is to reach in and lift out some of the reasons that Paul gives for writing the letter so that we can look for those as we're going through these messages. And the third observation that I want to make is to lift out what comes naturally as you read and think about this letter. What are the themes that rise to the surface? Because we're going to find that there are some themes, some threads that are running throughout the book. And what are those themes that, to be looking for as we study the book? One of the interesting things, I'll, I'll give you a little tip on how to study a book of the Bible, especially one of the smaller ones like this, is to go onto your computer and find the version of your choice and print it out so that you can mark it up any way you want to and you don't have to worry about it. And that's what I've done. And that's what I do sometimes is... is I print out the book of Philippians and then I begin to go through it and I'll underline words that I see repeated a lot of times. I'll, I'll say, oh, he's emphasizing this and look at how this is connected to that and I draw on it and all these wonderful things. And it helps us to understand the flow of thought of the author and what he intended to convey to that church. And that's what we want to bring. So as we go through these messages, what are we looking for? Well, we're not looking for my opinion. We're not looking for your opinion. We're looking for what the author intended to convey through these words and these phrases and these paragraphs. And that's what we want to do as we exposit God's Word in the coming Sundays. Well, this morning, let's start with the historical background. Philippi was a city that was named after Philip II of Macedon. He was, anybody know who he was, Philip II? <laughs> He was the father of somebody I bet you know, Alexander the Great. He was his father. And he annexed the region known as Philippi in 356 B.C. He fortified a little village there called Crenitis, which means the little fountains named after the springs of water that were nearby. And he renamed it Philippi, or what the meaning of that is, city of Philip. And after himself... 
So the Romans come in and they conquer Macedonia in 2nd century B.C. And Philippi was then incorporated into a Roman province of the same name. The city was relatively obscure for about a century until 42 B.C. when it became the site of one of the most important battles in the history of the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, this is known as the Battle of Philippi, where the forces of Antony and Octavian, Octavian is another name for Caesar Augustus that we find in the book of Luke, chapter 2. So the forces of Antony and Octavian defeated the Republican forces uh, of Brutus and Cassius. And so the battle marked the end of the Republic and the beginning of the Empire. And so Antony... Uh, the, the Senate declared Octavian emperor in 29 B.C. And Antony and Octavian then settled many of their army veterans in the city of Philippi. And it was given the coveted status of a Roman colony. And so many of the other veterans from the, from the army would come and settle there. And it was a, as Acts 16 verse 12 tells us, it was a Roman colony, which meant... That basically what that means is that it was a little Rome. It was a mini Rome. They had the same uh, form of dress, uh, the, 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 uh, the language that they spoke was Latin, even though Greek was spoken as well. Their coins had Roman inscriptions on them. And so in their dress style and, and in many ways, they were... Uh, a spinoff of the Roman cities of Italy. They were exempt from certain taxes. And so it was a very prosperous city uh, because it was right in the region of a major trade route. As you come up into uh, the European continent, you would come through Philippi. And so economically, it was a strategic city. And culturally, it was rich with Roman culture. If you want to see the, and mark down, here's your homework assignment. You can read Acts chapter 16 at home. But in Acts chapter 16, I'll give you a little taste. This is where the gospel first came into the European continent. Because Luke gives us the record of the gospel as it comes into Macedonia in chapter 16. You all know 16 verse 9 when it says what we call the Macedonian call where Paul has a vision and in the vision he sees a man who is calling to him and says come over into Macedonia and help us. And so Paul and his missionary team uh, now knowing that God has called them to travel on up into Macedonia do so. And you have to be reminded now that this is 20 years after Christ had been crucified. 20 years has passed since Jesus had died on the cross and rose from the grave and sent out his, his uh, apostles and disciples. And he said, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have told you. And I am with you, he said, always, even to the end of the age. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You will be witnesses unto me, both in Judea and Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so they begin to do that. And 
20 years have passed. So it's around 51 A.D. And the gospel is going forward. And God is completing His promise that He made through the mouth of the Son of God when He said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto Myself. And so this would mark the movement of the gospel into Europe. And the way that it comes in Acts chapter 16 is to highlight and touch down on at least three different people. Uh, The first convert mentioned in Acts chapter 16 is a woman by the name of Lydia. She's a businesswoman, a seller of purple, of thyatria. And she's there with a little band of women by the river's edge outside of the city. And so they're there, they're religious people, they like to pray to God, but they don't know about Jesus. And Paul and his band of missionaries comes, and they meet them. And in the midst of this band, we know a few of them. We know that Paul and Silas are together. We know that Timothy's there, and we know that Luke is there. Because in the book of Acts, this is where we find those phrases, we, the little word we, uh, in the book of Acts. And that's how we know that the writer is there with him, and sometimes he's not there, and you can see the difference. So they come, they proclaim the gospel, and the church of Philippi is, one, is, is, is born. Now, the way that it happens is because there's this band of people. They're there to have prayer, and Paul comes, and he preaches Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world and to come unto him, all ye who are, la- are, are uh, labor and are heavy laden and get rest for your soul. He died for you, and the Bible says that God opened Lydia's heart to pay attention, to attend to the things that Paul was speaking. So that's how it happens. God, in His sovereign hand of mercy, through the drawing power of the Holy Spirit, as the gospel is proclaimed, draws people to Jesus Christ. If I be lifted up, Jesus said, I will draw all men, all people, unto me. Then the Bible goes on to move to a different person, and it's a little slave girl. And her masters are exploiting this girl because she has a spirit of divination, an evil spirit. She can tell people's fortunes, and these guys are making a lot of money off of her. But she's going around behind Paul and his missionary team, and she's saying, these are servants of the Most High God. They come to tell us the way of salvation. And the interesting thing is that she's telling the truth. (laughs) She's actually telling the truth. They are servants of the Most High God. They are coming and proclaiming the way of salvation. But something about the way that she did it must have been annoying because it, it got on Paul's nerves. And finally, one day, he turns and he says... He rebukes the evil spirit and casts it out of her in the name of Jesus. And she's made whole and delivered from this oppression in her life. Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly say at this point that the the girl was converted. But I would like to think, (laughs) I would like to think that this girl was born again. I would like to think that in the church at Philippi, there is Lydia and some of the people of her household and maybe many of her friends that Paul preached to. And there's a slave girl now who's been freed from, her, from the oppression of a demon spirit. And, but that gets Paul and Silas into trouble. Because these men, they get very, very angry. I'll tell you one way to make somebody mad. Mess around with their money. Amen? <laughs> 
In this world, you mess around with somebody's money, they're going to get mad. Well, these people got highly upset at Paul and Silas and took them and cast them into prison, and they beat them. They beat them with rods and cast them into prison. And that's where we find another man. And you all know the story about the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas, <laughs> shackled together, been beaten. I'll just go ahead and say the old phrase, beaten half to death, and they're there. And, they, and what do they do? Well, the Bible says that they pray, they're praying to God, and they're singing hymns. <laughs> I just love that. Shackled up, in prison, they shouldn't be there, they've done nothing wrong. However, they counted a joy to suffer for Christ. And so they sing praises, they're praying to God, the jailer hears, everybody else hears, midnight comes, an earthquake rumbles the jail, their shackles come loose, the jailer says, oh goodness, everybody's going to leave, they're gone, I'm going to get killed. So he takes a sword, he begins to kill his own, take his own life. Paul cries out and says, do yourself no harm, we're all here. He comes in trembling, convicted by the Holy Spirit of God, and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so the church at Philippi is born. There's Lydia and her household. There's the Philippian jailer and his household. And quite possibly the slave girl who had been freed from demon oppression. Paul and Silas were asked to leave the city. And they moved on up into Thessalonica. This is about 51 A.D. And approximately 10 to 12 years later, Paul finds himself in prison again. <laughs> He's in prison a lot. And he finds himself in prison again. This time he's at Rome. And he's waiting on the sentence of whether he's going to be freed or executed. And at this point, he picks up his pen and he begins to write. And he writes the book of Ephesians. He writes the book of Colossians. He writes the book of Philemon. And he writes the book of Philippians. So that's the historical background. That's the background of the city. A little bit of the background of the church. Second observation. What are the things, the reasons that Paul has picked up his pen to write? I just want to kind of do a bullet point of some of the things to look for as we go through this letter. Number one, he writes to report his circumstances. His circumstances. It's just like any missionary uh, wants to communicate with those who support him. If one of you... Uh, is called to the mission field and you go to a foreign country, we want to know, we want to hear from you. We'd like to hear what's going on, what's happening with you. And that's what Paul does. He picks up his pen. He says, I'm going to write my beloved flock back at Philippi, the church that I planted by God's grace. The second reason is to express appreciation for their concern for him. And also, he wants to express appreciation for the gift that they've given him. We'll see that. They have given him and supported him. And also uh, to assure them that Epaphroditus, who became ill while he was with Paul and ministering to Paul on the church's behalf, was getting better and that he was ministering to Paul and that he would be coming back to them shortly. He also writes, fourthly, to urge them to fulfill various responsibilities. There's going to be several imperative statements mentioned in this letter. 
as He calls them to live in such a way that it honors God and glorifies Christ and upholds the faith of the gospel. And fifthly, he writes to warn them about the ever-present danger of false teaching. It's so easy. The church is always, always, always going to be plagued with false teaching. Always going to be tempted uh, with people who come in. There'll be people who rise up in the midst of churches. There are people who will come from the outside who will influence. And so... Those are some of the reasons that Paul writes the letter. Now, third observation. You didn't think I'd get there that fast, did you? Third observation is, what are some of the themes? Now, this is where, if I was taking notes, this is the part of the service that I would pick up my pen. Because I'm not going to remember those dates. (laughs) And I'm probably not going to remember all those bullet points. But I want to know, what are the underlying themes that pop up in in the pages And in the words of this letter, number one, one of the major themes of the book is irrepressible joy. And if you don't know how to spell that, do the best you can. Irrepressible joy. It means that you can't press it down. You can't push it away. It doesn't, Paul doesn't write the letter and say, uh, here's the how-to of joy. No, he says, he, he writes and he deals with all of these issues and the circumstances and he reports and he warns and he encourages in, 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 in their circumstances. And while he does that, it just seems to pop up over and over again, this theme of irrepressible joy. We know that Paul's in prison. He has every reason to be gloomy, <laughs> but he's not a gloomy person. Why? Because of what I read to you before we prayed. That he has counted everything, life and health and money and prestige and power and positions as nothing in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, the Lord. So those circumstances that he found himself in could not and did not diminish his abounding joy. Again and again in the letter, he uses the word joy, the word rejoice. He writes, for example, in chapter 1, verse 18, I rejoice and I will rejoice. Chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. As he deals with the problems, as he deals with the circumstances, this irrepressible joy keeps bubbling up and spilling over. So one of the things that we need to be looking for is this irrepressible joy. Now, how do you have it? I've actually titled the whole series, The Secret to Holy Joy. The secret to holy joy is in Jesus Christ. Knowing Him, enjoying Him, being in a relationship with God is the secret to holy joy. And as long as you're focused on Jesus, as long as you're focused on God and His glory and not your own circumstances, you're going to have bubbling up in the midst of the problems and trials this irrepressible joy. There can be no doubt that Christ is the center of of the apostles' joy because there are 104 verses in this book. And in those 104 verses, we find some form of the name of Christ or a pronoun referring to Christ a total of 61 times. So Paul is constantly talking about Christ and how central he is in his life, central in his writing, central in his mission, central in everything he does. And that brings me to the second theme. 
The second theme, so number one is irrepressible joy. Number two is a Christ-centered mind. Paul deals with the mind over and over again in these, in these words. He, the word mind, minds, minded, think a total of 11 times throughout the letter. So when you put these two together, you come up with this truth. Christian joy comes from a Christ-centered mind. Is that the kind of mind that you have this morning? As you came in here today, I know you were burdened with so many things. I know you got up early and and about halfway through you said, man, I'm getting tired. I'd like to go back home and take a nap. Are you centered and focused in your life on Christ? That's the question we need to ask ourselves as we go through this book together. Because that is one of the central themes of the Apostle Paul as he writes. He talks about this over and over again. Number three, the third theme that comes out over and over is trouble in the church. We need to be looking for this trouble, these problems in the church. He reveals his concern for basically three problems within the church at Philippi. I'll give you those. Number one, disunity. Disunity was a problem. And Paul addresses it. Number two, suffering. And number three, opponents. A brief word about each one. Disunity. Clearly the problem of disunity in the church at Philippi was on Paul's agenda very high. He addresses the problem uh, not only among two of the women that were there. He directly appeals to two of the women who are in conflict. But also throughout the letter he He denounces their envy, their rivalry, their selfish ambition, their vain conceit, their grumbling and arguing, and he challenges them to be one spirit. He challenges them to be of one mind in the Lord. And underlying all of this urgency is one of the other themes, and that is that Paul is is vehemently committed to the advancement and the defense of the gospel. He says that in chapter 1, verse 7. The integrity of the gospel is compromised by disunity in the church. I'll say that again. The integrity of the gospel is compromised by disunity within the church. What do I mean by that? Think about that. You want to go out to your friends and you would love to say, Jesus is the way. Come to church. Where God's people gather to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And they come through the door and they will, if it is present, they will pick up on the fact that there is disunity in the church. And if there is, it compromises the integrity of the gospel. Now it doesn't actually compromise it in um, objective, factual uh, compromising. In other words, the gospel is still true. It still say the Jesus still saves. But what happens is it gives people an excuse not to believe the gospel is true when it, when they see that there's disunity in the church. Number two problem that comes up that troubles the church is suffering, and so he addresses the painful and the discouraging circumstances of the suffering of the in the life of a Christian. It's a major theme throughout the entire discourse. For example, he describes his experience in chains in chapter 1 from verses 12 to 26. 
He explains that Christians are called to suffer for Christ in chapter 1, verse 29. He quotes the hymn depicting Christ suffering a death on the cross in chapter 2. He points to himself as one being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of their faith in chapter 2. He relates how Epaphroditus suffered in the course of his service on behalf of the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 27 to 30. And he also records his loss of all things that we read and expresses his desire to share in the sufferings of Christ. And he says that he knows what it's like to be in need. Anyone who preaches today that the life of a Christian is not a life of suffering, brace yourself, very forthright statement here, is lying. Paul has a central theme, and one of the themes is that there's trouble that rises up in the church, not only from those who are making discord and disunity, but also the fact that we suffer often tempts us to compromise the gospel. And that's exactly what's happening in the churches today. People are compromising and not calling people to the altar, not just to receive eternal life in Christ, but you're also, Paul, says not only called to believe and to receive that eternal life and joy, but also you're called to suffer for Christ. And number three, opponents. Opponents. And for the sake of time, I'm going to diminish my comments and just boil it down. There are four categories of opponents that Paul addresses. Number one, preachers of Christ who suppose they can stir up trouble for Paul, chapter 1. Roman opponents to the gospel who are intimidating uh, the church at Philippi. Jewish Christians who are trying to lead the the Gentile Christians to to practice the law of Moses so that they can be accepted by God. And that is not according to the truth of the gospel because you are saved today, listen to me very carefully, by faith alone in Jesus Christ. You are not saved by keeping the law, being circumcised, and meeting on the Sabbath day, and going through all the regulations and the rituals, because by the works of the law, the Bible says, no flesh shall be justified. But what does that mean? That means that we are sinners who need a Savior, and Jesus Christ is the one who came and bled and died to fulfill the law, establish a perfect righteousness for us, And to take our place on the cross so that the punishment of our sins was upon Him. So that we could be justified by trusting in Him. Praise the Lord. That's another opponent. And fourthly, the Gentile Christians who live or literally walk as enemies of the cross because of the pressure of the Roman culture. In other words, it's the same thing that's happening in the church today. So many people today are pressured by the culture all around us, seeking health and wealth and prosperity and comfort, seeking possessions, seeking positions of power and prominence and prestige, seeking to be known and to be somebody and have a good life now, seeking those types of things all around us. Those were also, Paul calls them, enemies of the Christ whose God is their belly, their end is destruction, and he warns the church about them. Number four. This is the fourth theme. The gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ. 
Everything that drives the Apostle Paul and his work and his ministry can be summed up in defending and confirming the gospel, chapter 1, to advance the gospel, to defend the gospel. He writes his letter in chapter 1, verse 5, and says uh, to thank the Philippians for their partnership in the gospel since the early days of their acquaintance or their partnership with him in the gospel in chapter 4 and verse 15. He, his, his first and overarching imperative or command of the church is that they live as citizens in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Striving together in, with one accord and with one mind for the gospel, for the faith of the gospel in chapter 1 and verse 27. His highest commendation of all of his co-workers is that they served with me in the work of the gospel. That they contended by his side. For the cause of the gospel in chapter 2 and chapter 4. The gospel takes first place in his life. And so as a church we have to ask ourselves as we go through this letter together. Is the gospel central in our focus, in our mission? Because at the center of the gospel what do we find? We find the person in the work of Jesus Christ. Number 5, this is the last one. Number 5. The fifth theme that comes up over and over again, and I'll tell you why, is the community in Christ. Not only the gospel of Christ, but the community in Christ. Because the phrase, in Christ, is found in this little letter 21 times. And when you find something that's wrote 21 times in a letter that small, it is a, con- it is a theme. It is something that keeps bubbling up through the Apostle Paul. He's writing, he's dictating, somebody's pinning it down. And over and over again, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, the gospel of Christ is central. And the community of Christ. Because when Paul writes about being in Christ, he's not only talking about when he says in chapter 1, verse 1, which we'll get to next week, Lord willing, when he talks to them and addresses them as all the saints in Christ, he's not... He's not talking to them as individual Christians. When you come to church on Sunday morning, don't come in here as an individual Christian. Don't do your individual worship. Sing together, pray together, listen together, practice together. Because to be unified with Christ is to be unified with God's people, the church in Christ. And that comes up over and over and over again in this letter. So we've got a lot to look forward to. Amen? <laughs> but let me ask you a serious question. Are you in Christ? To be in Christ means to be unified with the person and work of Jesus. Now, what did Jesus accomplish in his person and work? Number one, he accomplished the salvation of all who will put their trust in him. In other words, if you will today turn away from the ways of sin and place your trust and dependency upon Jesus Christ and believe that he died in your place for your sin, took upon himself the wrath of God against your sin on that cross, that you will be forgiven of your sins and you will be given the gift of eternal life and a relationship and a union with Almighty God. That's what it means to be in Christ. To be in Christ is the safest place to be because when the fire of God's wrath falls, it cannot burn where it is already burned. And it is only already burned 
on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as he hung between the heavens and the earth. And if you will trust and believe on Jesus today, you'll be saved. You'll be in Christ. And the fire of God's wrath will never burn upon you again. But the, but the valve of God's mercy has been turned. And the flood, only thing that comes, listen to this, the only thing that comes to a Christian constantly, every second, every millisecond, everything that flows from God to you who are in Christ today is only mercy. <laughs> only mercy. No wrath. No punishment. Only mercy. Because of Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the book of Philippians. Thank you so much that we have it. We can hold it. We can read it. Study it. But God, as we do, do not, do not allow us to study it as an abstract document. Do not allow us to just analyze it and critique it. But allow us, O oh God, by your mercy and grace to have eyes to see the glory of Christ in the words and the sentences and the paragraphs of this letter. Help us, O oh God, to see the burning passion of the Apostle Paul's heart. And God, I pray that it would be ours. That we as Christians in Christ would be centered and focused upon you, God, and your glory among the nations of the world, starting in our own city and in our own families. God, I'm so excited. I look forward to unpacking this wonderful letter. I'm inadequate to do it, and I pray for your help. I pray that you will... Oh, grant us great grace and mercy to study your word together. Today, my Father, if there's one that is not in Christ, help them to feel the weight of their sin. Help them to feel the glory and see the beauty of Christ as he died on the cross for them. Help them today by granting them the gift of faith and repentance that they could turn from sin and self and turn to you in faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.